The Arizona legislature wrapped up work and went home for the rest of the year on the last day of July. It was a session that will be best remembered for its record-setting length, 204 days, and the record-breaking number of vetoes issued by Governor Katie Hobbs, 143. Both are signs of the difficult adjustment to divided government at the Capitol, something Arizona has not seen for 14 years. Welcome to The Gaggle, an Arizona politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Republic. And I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover state politics and policy for the Republic. In this episode of The Gaggle, we're reviewing the work completed by the 56th legislature and things still left on the table. The impact of their closing act will have repercussions throughout the state, ranging from roads and bike lanes to savings to renters with the elimination of the rental tax. And we dive into what the sometimes contentious legislative session pretends for next year's session, when every legislative seat will be up for grabs, not to mention the U.S. presidency. Here to talk about that, we visit with Stacy Barchinger, who covers the Arizona governor's office for the Republic, and Taylor Seeley, who covers Phoenix city government for the Republic. First up, we welcome back Stacy. Thank you for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So Stacy, Governor Hobbs started her term making it clear what she wanted to get done, like rolling back the universal voucher program, and what she would protect, such as abortion rights. What wins did Hobbs get out of her first legislative session? There are plenty of things that she has been pointing to as accomplishments for her first session as a Democratic governor with a Republican-majority legislature. You hear the governor talk a lot about a $150 million investment into the Housing Trust Fund. That's basically seed money to help affordable housing projects throughout the state. You hear her talk a lot about hundreds of millions of dollars that will go to repairing and rebuilding school facilities. She's very proud of uh, getting a budget, a bipartisan budget, across the finish line in mid-May. Um, listeners will know that that's pretty early in the in the schedule. A lot of the times you have lawmakers working very tightly against that July 1st deadline trying to get things done, and that wasn't the case this year. And then, of course, the finale of the session, Prop 400. This is something that came in fits and starts throughout the session. Maybe there was a deal. Maybe there wasn't. Maybe there was another deal. Then it kind of fell apart. Um, But we saw on the final day of work, actually, the governor aligned with Republican leaders in the legislature on a compromise version that will put a question to Maricopa County voters whether to extend a half-cent sales tax that funds transportation projects throughout the county. We should mention, you know, those are the things the governor points to as as wins, but there are some high-profile things that she didn't get. You know, any sort of rollback or cap on the voucher program didn't come to fruition this year. Abortion rights are pretty much status quo to where they were when she started. She had proposed putting more money in the budget for family planning, and that that was just a no-go with the Republican-majority legislature. You mentioned some compromises earlier. One of the U-turns that was notable in all this is she wound up signing a bill that ends the rental tax for cities and counties, something that she had vetoed earlier in the session. Why the about face? 
Yeah, this is one of the most fascinating uh, flip-flops of the session, in my own opinion. This is a bargaining chip, right? Unable to reach agreement with the legislature on what version of Proposition 400 would be palatable to put before the voters. The governor agreed to sign this bill, and you're right, she had vetoed a very similar version of it months earlier that prohibits municipalities from taxing rent. It's usually like 1% to 3%. It comes in addition to whatever you pay your landlord every month. And Republicans who ran the bill say repealing that rent is really about relief for Arizonans in times of high inflation. The governor vetoed the earlier version of the bill saying that there was no guarantee that Arizonans would actually get that money back, that it could just be absorbed by landlords, um, so that this really wasn't the right way to provide that sense of relief. But then, you know, months later, she sort of, uh, I guess, swallowed those concerns and signed off on the bill, which actually leaves her in a very interesting position. This is a governor who back in January, when she was touring the state, giving local versions of her state of the state, bragged about how many plaques from the League of Cities and Towns that she has that she earned as a as a lawmaker. And now she has done something that they are opposed to, right? It leaves cities in a position of looking for revenue that they will have to give up as a result of these taxes being cut. And we've seen mayors like Kay Gallego in Phoenix and John Giles in Mesa being somewhat critical of this change and calling on the legislature to backfill that money in coming years. I'm sort of surprised that she hasn't now taken a page maybe from the legislative uh, Republican leaders who are saying this rental tax repeal is a great thing because it's going to save people money. It's going to help out with renters. We have a housing crisis here. Prices have gone way up for rents. Have you heard any of that coming from the governor? I mean, she was trying to look out for people doing some pocketbook savings. Yeah, I mean, we haven't really heard that sort of like spin from her. And I think it's probably because she would be contradicting herself, right? She she addressed these concerns about whether renters like you and I, or me at least, would um, actually get this savings. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. We haven't heard the governor talk about that piece of this deal really at all. She signed the rental tax bill the same day she signed Prop 400. And we got a press release from the governor's office that had a big, long quote about Prop 400 and mentioned pretty much as a footnote, like, oh, hey, she had also signed the (laughs) rental tax bill. Wow. The governor only got a handful of her cabinet nominees approved. For our listeners, the nominees have to be approved by the state Senate. What is the landscape on her filling out her cabinet and getting that stamp of approval? Yeah, so uh, we closed the session with six of about two dozen nominees who had made it completely through the confirmation process. Various others are in in limbo. Some haven't been considered at all. Some have been recommended but are being sort of like held in limbo by the state Senate. And this is one of the biggest areas of criticism that I've heard of the governor, that she didn't understand her leverage as governor to get any sort of agreement with a sometimes hostile GOP legislature that these people needed to get confirmed. The perk of confirmation is they can serve beyond a year. State law says that you have to be confirmed, otherwise you're limited to a year at the head of one of these agencies. And so that can lead to a sense of instability for all the people working in those agencies. And quite frankly, it's kind of unclear what comes next. The governor has hinted that she has other options, but she won't tell us what those are. And 
On the last day of session, you know, I ran down Senate President Warren Peterson and asked him about this. He said that um, the director nominations committee would continue to meet, would continue vetting nominees. And then I went to uh, Senator Jake Hoffman, who is sort of the constant thorn in Governor Hobbs' side, also in charge of that committee. And I asked him the same question, and he repeated what he said before, which is a suggestion that no work will get done until Hobbs rescinds some executive orders that he doesn't agree with. She has said she won't do that, so I guess a stalemate. Okay, so that's looking at what has already happened. Let's talk about the future for a moment. What does the future look like for Governor Hobbs in terms of legislative relations? She's made it clear she's going to work to try and flip control of the legislature for Democrats. And this is as her Republican colleagues that she has to sit down at the bargaining table are still in control. What does this say about 2024? Oh, I think it says 2024 is going to be a pretty interesting year to cover the Arizona legislature and governor. Um, you know, if you go back to January of this year, she delivered a state of the state that several very conservative Republican lawmakers walked out of. But you ended the session with Governor Hobbs and Senate President Warren Peterson, a very conservative Republican, on the same page while Peterson was at odds with some members of the Arizona Freedom Caucus. Perhaps that's an insidery split, but I think that's pretty noteworthy for how they ended the session. You have both Peterson and Hobbs expressing optimism about what this looks like when they come back in January. They have a apparently an open line of communication. They're never going to agree on ideology or policy, but they are both saying they can work together. And I'm going to just reality check that as you you just did, which is the governor is going to be working to get more Democrats in seats in the legislature. When she announced that this year, we saw GOP members of the legislature just push back. Um, they felt it was really her sort of like big footing their work. I suspect that will happen again next year. And I did actually ask the governor about this, um, this specific question about how she thinks that threat will impact her work with the legislature. She says, as long as they can put partisan politics aside, as they did this year, everything will be fine. Um, we haven't mentioned House Speaker Ben Toma, you know, also a Republican leader. Um, he has not um, had as much open conflict with the governor as we've seen with the Senate president. But when asked about, you know, how they're going to operate next year, given that she's looking to put, what did she say, $500,000 into flipping the legislature, Speaker Toma said, well, I hope that's all she's going to spend, um, suggesting that the Republicans are going to be gearing up for a big fight. All that said, he also has a pretty upbeat assessment of how they found a way to come together on the big issues and uh, said that that has led to very um, non-contentious and polite conversations and negotiations. I guess we will see. The other sort of outlier is, uh, you know, this year the governor and GOP leaders basically bought votes on the budget using our, what, $2 billion surplus. They gave lawmakers an allowance to spend almost however they wanted. And that's not a reality based on what we know now for next year. Like the forecast is that money just won't be there. So it's going to be a much tougher negotiation um, on the one big thing that lawmakers and the governor have to get done every year. Well, Stacy, thank you for coming in as always. If people want to follow your work on social media, where can they find you? 
yeah, they can find me on social media at sbarchinger. That's S-B-A-R-C-H-E-N-G-E-R. Taylor, welcome back to The Gaggle. Thanks for making time. Thank you. So, Mary Jo and and Taylor, I want to get right to it. Mary Jo, let's start with you, perhaps. Give us the headline in the TLDR on Prop 400. What happened and what is the takeaway? Prop 400 came in with grand plans. A lot of them got tailored way back by the Republican legislature and the governor and legislative leaders struck a deal, and we now have a Prop 400 extension um, after months of negotiation. And Taylor, this has some fairly big implications for the city of Phoenix and the Valley as a whole, does it not? Yeah. I mean, especially in terms of the Valley as a whole, what was included is going to be transformative. The highways that are going to be built out in the Southwest Valley, State Route 30 from Once it's fully built out, Buckeye to Phoenix is going to be a huge traffic reliever for the I-10 and West Valley residents. There's going to be another highway in North Phoenix, Peoria area, Loop 303, mainly to deal with traffic congestion coming from TSMC. So that's huge. But in terms of what didn't make it in Phoenix, light rail extensions were cut. So you have two light rail extensions. One was going to go from Phoenix downtown to 79th Avenue West parallel to the I-10. And there was another route um, that was to receive funding in the West Valley somewhere between 19th and 43rd or 47th Avenue. The exact map wasn't planned out yet. So those light rail plans are not going to be funded by Proposition 400's extension, if indeed voters approve the overall measure in fall of 2024. But as you reported, Taylor, Phoenix still has the money, or they're going to find the money to still build those two extensions. Can you talk a little bit about how that happens? Yeah, correct. So this was like the big question on my mind, and I think a lot of local reporters' minds after Prop 400, I was like running around like a chicken with my head cut off, like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh my gosh, why is everyone celebrating? This seems horrible for them. Come to find that, you know, Valley Metro, Phoenix, MAG, they're all very confident that the light rail extensions will continue. One of the things that was a scary question for them initially was if we lose regional funding, how do we get the federal match? Usually for light rail projects, half of the funding comes from the federal government. But as Valley Metro pointed out, the current Proposition 400 compared to the upcoming Proposition 400, the funding allocation for public transit actually increases 33% to 37%. So municipalities are actually going to receive more money. Now, as we pointed out, that money is barred from use for light rail extensions, But Mary Jo, as you reported, there is some flexibility within it where cities could use their Proposition 400 money for more bus operations, freeing up their own local tax revenue for light rail. So the exact details of how it will work out is yet to be determined. But Phoenix, Mesa, and Tempe all have their own local transit taxes. So I think 
they are going to be in very good shape. And this is something that was negotiated fairly early on um, as this transportation tax measure was bumping around at the legislature. But Taylor, I will say that your reporting about Phoenix plans to go ahead with these two routes surprised a fair number of Republican lawmakers who didn't like this whole plan to begin with. They really wanted to see the end of light rail, which is why Proposition 400 was written to not have any money for expansion, only to for maintenance. But um, this has really stirred up the pot. But there's really nothing they can do. This will be local dollars paying for rail extension if, if Phoenix really does go forward with it. I think we should also talk about the other light rail component that became collateral damage in this agreement, and that was a proposed loop that would go around the state capitol. <laughs> um, and Taylor, do you want to give us a, a little bit of insight on what that was supposed to look like? <laughs> yeah, so this was supposed to be a light rail loop directly circling the state capitol. As I said, federal government provides a lot of money for light rail, and so municipalities have to find a way to make their project competitive. They have to find a way to kind of put that cherry on top to their project. So I think going to the state capitol was in part a way to do that and stand out and say this is why our project um, is better than other cities' projects. But some Republicans in the legislature really did not like that. And so... They specifically wrote into the new Proposition 400 extension bill that it cannot go on 17th and 18th Avenues, what is, I think, Adams and Jefferson Streets. So it just says, you know, you can come near us, but not exactly right next to us. So I know Mayor Kate Gallego um, is not thrilled with that. She said it would have been great to provide access to the state capitol, especially for people like um, disabled veterans or other people who, you know, just might have the need for public transit to the state capitol. But I think we can rest assured that if they still intend to go from downtown to 79th Avenue as they do, you're going to get pretty dang close to the capitol. Yeah, it was very meticulous the way the legislation was written. Um, and House Speaker Ben Toma, who sort of led the charge against this capital loop, he said he found it personally insulting, <laughs> the idea that a light rail train would circulate around the Capitol. And he pointed out that because it would go down one one-way street and then return on another one-way street, those streets abut the parking lots that our state lawmakers pull into every day, and they would have to cross light rail tracks to um, get into work. Horrible. And he just found that <laughs> terrible. Actually, I think you could have designed it so that you wouldn't have to drive over any tracks, but that's all water under the bridge right now. Mary Jo, I want to have you address the politics of this. You've referenced on several different spots here the Republican resistance to this. This was a session that is defined more than anything else, it seems, by the time it took to reach the end. So how did Prop 400 play out? What were the political fault lines here with this? And what was the objection to any of this from Republicans? Well, the main fault line was light rail. This was a package. The Maricopa Association of Governments brought this plan, put together a plan. It took them three years, lots of meetings, et cetera, public input. They bring this shiny new plan to the legislature, hoping that it would get approved because basically the same thing got approved last year by last year's legislature, only to be vetoed by then-Governor Ducey. So round two, they try again. 
And it's a whole different audience um, at the legislature in 2023 for this plan. But because it was all kept together as one plan, roads, highways, and transit, you sort of had to compromise. If you want one thing but not the other, you're going to have to meet in the middle. And that's what kept the plan together is that a recognition that not every city is going to have light rail. And a lot of cities, such as Phoenix, doesn't really need new highways. But everybody's, if you want your highways, you're going to have to vote for light rail. And the compromise kept that together. And this was a compromise worked out uh, by Governor Hobbs, who's a Democrat with, with the Republican leaders. It really offended uh, members of the Freedom Caucus, who back in June had a bill that would have split this into two questions on the ballot. It would have segregated light rail as a separate question, confident that that would probably be defeated by voters. And then that way you would really hurt it. But they put the whole thing back together, and this bill passed with bipartisan, lopsided support. What is their opposition to light rail? They think it's a waste of money. They look at the ridership numbers. The ridership numbers aren't great. They've dipped a lot during the, as all transit numbers did during um, the pandemic, and they're just starting to crawl back. But supporters say, look, this is a 20-year plan. We're planning for the future. Things are going to change, and the way people get around are going to change. We can only make streets so wide. We can only build so many freeways. And we're doing a lot of development right around the light rail line. It's like that is the, the seed that gets planted that brings all these other things along. But mostly they see it as a waste of money and to a certain degree, you know, um, a loss of autonomy on how you get around in your personal vehicle. I guess I want to take the opportunity while I'm on Gaggle to point this out. It's interesting to me that Proposition 400 became a partisan Republican versus Democratic thing in the legislature because, as Mary Jo pointed out, mayors across Maricopa County negotiated this for over a year. And minus, you know, Phoenix, obviously Kate Gallego is a Democrat. Technically, city councils are nonpartisan in Arizona, but, you know, we all know where they lie. You had so many Republican mayors across the valley really in high support and actually adamant about how the light rail was a regional benefit, which honestly surprised me. Avondale Mayor Ken Weiss has been such a staunch supporter of Proposition 400, such a staunch supporter of even light rail. And, you know, once it gets built out to 79th Avenue, sure, that's close to Avondale. It's still not there, yet he still sees it as a benefit. So it's just interesting how things can become political in certain government bodies. But I hope that people take this as an opportunity to clue more into their their local city councils. Well, speaking of local matters, you referenced earlier some of the financing that would go into keeping the extensions on track, as it were, pun intended. But there was also some developments in local funding as it relates to one tax stream that cities have depended on for decades in some cases. Tell us what happened and, and why that matters. Yes. So in exchange for Proposition 400 support, Governor Hobbs signed a piece of legislation that the Republicans have been pushing for some time, asking to ban cities from imposing uh, residential rental sales tax. So when you're an apartment renter, you have a line item that is another tax. The rate varies from between 1% and 3%. So if you're in a city with a higher rate and if you have a more expensive apartment, you're going to pay... I mean, usually it's around 30 bucks, but it can vary. The ban obviously prevents cities from collecting it. It is a significant portion of money for cities. 
in Phoenix, they were projecting to receive $90 million in 2025 from residential rental sales tax. And as you can imagine, as rent prices have soared over the past few years, the cities have been making more and more money from this, which I think is a hard part to reconcile with. On the one hand, it's good for them. They can provide more services to their residents with it. On the other hand, people are struggling with their rent. So the idea that cities are, you know, as some lawmakers have said, cashing in on their struggle made it a a bargaining chip for the legislature. But yeah, in Phoenix, they're going to lose $90 million annually, and that figure only would have grown. Okay, so for renters, this is probably not the end of the world. But how soon will they get that relief that is part of this deal? That is going to start in 2025. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that your rent and your costs of living aren't going to still go up. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that rents typically go up every year. So that is probably still going to happen. But, you know, what detractors of the rent tax repeal impressed was how do we know that landlords aren't going to recognize that apartment renters could afford to pay this extra $40 a month, therefore just tack it on to the base price of their rent? So what some of the legislators did in response was they added a stipulation that said landlords, at least until 2027, cannot tack that price on and that the burden of proof is on the landlord to prove that if they are raising rents, that it is not because they're just tacking that price on arbitrarily. That tax will go away, but I'm guessing the cities have to have some new way to get back some of the revenue they will not be collecting in the future. Do we have a sense as to what they are looking at and how soon any of that might come into play? Yes. Our city reporters have been reaching out to mayors across the valley trying to get that answered yesterday and today. And right now, it seems like one of the biggest requests mayors are making is that the legislature step up and do something to mitigate the shortfall. So, You know, in the past, when Governor Doug Ducey passed his income tax cut, the legislature increased cities' share of state revenue from 15% to 18%. Mayor Kate Gallego pointed that out in an interview to me. So I think she and many other mayors would be more than happy to see an increase in the state shared revenue. I know that Senator Warren Peterson has said, well, we already increased your state revenue. You guys are doing fine. So how well those negotiations are going to go, I, I don't know. But, you know, in Phoenix, that funding goes about half into the general fund, which the general fund mostly pays for police and fire. And then the other half of that 90 million or so goes into parks and preservation fund, the transportation 2050 fund and neighborhood safety fund. These are voter approved sales tax allocations. So I know that the cities very much feel, Phoenix is not alone, that their voter-approved missions are going to be weakened if they don't find a way to fill the shortfall. To add on to what Taylor said, I think in terms of how to uh, make up for this eventual loss of money to the cities, um, all eyes do turn to the Capitol, especially to the governor. Um, We will be watching to see what she puts into her budget proposal next year. Of course, it takes the legislature to um, pass that, and that will be a very interesting debate if it ever comes up. You've identified that this came from Republicans who were supportive of this measure. There was at least one prominent Republican last year who wanted to do something that the cities were actually eager to see. 
Yeah. So the rent tax ban was something that was also, if um, some of our listeners might remember, this was an economic policy plan actually promoted by Carrie Lake when she was running for governor. And one of the, I guess, you know, compromises you could say she was uh, saying that she would make is a five-year cushion period saying, you know, we recognize this is going to significantly affect your budgets, uh, dear mayors. So we'll, we'll work with you to do some sort of five-year period. So I do imagine that mayors might bring that point up as they lobby the legislature for some cushion. I'm sure these kind of tax cut ideas have many mothers, but um, when I was speaking with House Speaker Ben Toma, he pointed out that this was not an original idea from Carrie Lake. She did champion it, but the legislature had been kicking around the idea and trying to pass a rental tax repeal for a year or two before Lake came along. Well, Taylor, thank you for coming in and going over all this with us. If people want to follow your work on social media, where can they find you? (laughs) <laughs> um, I am on Twitter or X at Taylor Seeley 95. Seeley is spelled S-E-E-L-Y. And I am on threads at taylor.azc. That is it for this week, Gaggle listeners. We always love to hear from you. So send us your questions and comments at 602 444 0804, or send us a voice memo to thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's one word, all spelled out. And remember to follow, rate, and review us wherever you're getting the gaggle. You can find us on social media at AZC Podcasts, and you can find me at Mary J. Pitzel, that's P-I-T-Z-L. You can find me under Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. This episode was edited and produced by Amanda Liberto and Kaylee Monahan. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.